This episode of the Organic BC Podcast was sponsored by... Nobody! Sometimes, we here at the podcast just love to produce episodes for the love of podcasting. And this is one of those. Yay! All right. So, I'm your host, Jordan Marr. And one of my goals with this podcast of late has been to try and make time to sit down with some of our community's members that have been around kind of since the start. There are a whole bunch of farmers in our community who are organic farmers in BC before there was organic certification in BC. And they have all watched our sector form and grow and evolve and struggle and grow and evolve some more and struggle some more. And I'm really interested in talking to some of them about all of it why they farm, how they farm, and what they've seen in the last 30-odd years or more in British Columbia. So with that in mind, I reached out to someone many listeners will know very well. His name is Patty Doherty. He and his partner, Elaine Spearing, have produced mainly carrots and a few other crops at West Enderby Farm for the last 10 to 15 years. And they have a whole history in farming before that. So on a recent weekday when not too much was going on in my own farm, I drove out to West Enderby Farm and sat down with Patty on a little cafe table overlooking the fields that are now mostly in cover crops since he and Elaine have decided to hang up their commercial farmer lanyards. My conversation with Patty was wide-ranging and that was the point. And that's all I'm going to say, everyone. Oh, and actually, there's one more thing I want to say before we get going, which is this. Within about a week of the release of this podcast, early bird tickets for BC's Organic Conference will go on sale. Newsflash for people who haven't been paying attention, this year's conference for the first time will be held in November, not February. I have been spending a bit of time on the conference committee and I can tell you it is shaping up to be really great. And one of the speakers who's going to be there is today's guest, Patty. So if you like what you hear here, that's one more reason to consider getting online and getting tickets before they start going up in price. So look for those at organicbc.org really soon. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Patty and I will talk to you in a little bit. Patty Doherty, thanks so much for having me out to West Ender to be farmed to interview you. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, uh, happy to have you. Patty, I have a lot I want to ask you about today, but I think you better, we better start at the start because in our chatter before the interview, it sounds like you didn't have much of a background in farming. So maybe you could tell me about how that changed. Yeah, well, uh, let's see, I graduated high school in 73, and then I went to uh, university for a couple semesters. I didn't really dig it and didn't really know what, you know, I was kind of at loose ends at that age. What is it, 17, 18? And then friends of mine uh, picked up on this uh, emerging commune in the caribou. So I went up there and hung out there, and uh, I really dug the lifestyle. And um, it's the first time I had like seen a cow, you know, or and and done anything agriculture, but it, it really appealed to me. And uh, so I lived there for a year or two, and then um, a few of us wanted our own commune. And uh, so we split off and uh, bought some property in the Caribou, or near Quinell, and uh, lived there 
for close to 40 years. Um, developed a, a little sheep ranch and homestead. We had about 500 acres and um, grew our own like we had milk cow and pigs and chickens and the whole thing and we had a, a flock of sheep and we had a big commercial garden we would sell vegetables and quenelle at the farmer's market did that for a long time i think i've got to stop you there tell me about that commune in terms of what it was doing agriculturally and who who were the characters that were there oh they're speaking of characters like the the there was a originator a guy named jerry laborde who um he has a long history and it really his there should be a book written about him anyway they're they're still going in there's a vestige of them called seeds c-e-e-d-s and uh he was an old communist and he um, he was wanted to do something different and uh, he had experience in agriculture so we many of us learned a lot about gardening and farming from um, from Jerry and uh, working with horses particularly he really liked horses and so we were working with draft horses and that's what we did in Quinnell's for a long time we did all our work with horses we put up our hay and did the cultivating in the garden and stuff we had uh, different teams of, of draft horses and um, that was definitely a challenge and it was interesting and uh, I learned a lot in the process did a lot of like blacksmithing and stuff and you know repairing things and uh it was kind of autocratic, right? Or, or not kind of. It was it was, and uh, so a few of us didn't like the, um, you know, the dictatorial aspect of it. So we wanted to have our own place, and so that's where we bought the place in Quinell. And uh, so we lived there, like, like I said, close to forty years, I think. And uh, but about twenty years ago, I got together with my wife Elaine, and. Uh, Eventually, Elaine and I wanted to do something different on our own, and uh, we ended up through different, like first we went to Vancouver and Elaine was teaching at UBC Farm and I was working on a, with an international organization. And by that time, I was like 55, so this is pretty late in life to be embarking on a, you know, a new venture. How old are you now, Patty? Now I'm 68. So... By 55 and having done a lot of different farming ventures, you know, and I, I worked for farmers too, like in the, I, I drove combine on the prairies for a bit, worked for beekeepers and stuff. And um, we had an idea of what we wanted to do. And we, and I said, I don't want to screw around. Um, I want a commercial farm. I, I don't want to be a poverty farmer anymore. You know. Well, can I stop you there? We're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna bring ourselves slowly towards this era, this past okay. era. But right. like, because I, I really want to stop on that phrase. Like, I I wanted to be a commercial farmer. I didn't want to be a poverty farmer anymore. That's why I was asking about those communes. Tell me more. Like, you can skip to the second commune, the one you co-own. But like, how? What? Describe the agriculture that was happening. Describe what was really working and maybe what wasn't working. About well, it was uh, kind of what we, you might call homestead agriculture which is the kind of agriculture you would it was very common a hundred years ago where um, you'd have a family farm and they would grow just about everything right you know have a big vegetable garden and 
pigs and chickens and milk cows and you know and some beef cow too maybe a small herd of beef cow and uh, horses and you know goats <laughs> sheep and so we we were really into that into the kind of a self-sufficiency notion you know mm. where uh, we did an inventory of how many machines we had on the farm that had hand, hand cranks on them like the the drill press and the cream separator and the the wheat grinders you know like they it just it was really quite an enormous the amount of the the forge had a blower on it that you cranked. It, was, it was it was it was kind of cool like there was that many things that you could that you operated by hand and um, and we were just into doing that but I, all my life I've been like I want to do something then I do it then I want to do something else and uh, th this drives Elaine crazy of course because mm -hmm. we're entirely different that way you mm -hmm. know Elaine wants to do things really good right I just want to do them and then <laughs> move on so somewhere on this farm, you had you have to in in partnerships we make compromises. So somewhere on this farm, there's a hand crank forge that Elaine still uses to <laughs> no no to scratch that itch. <laughs> no, me, I'm the crank guy. <laughs> uh, do you, do you remember do you remember what it cost for that 500 acres up up near Cornell? Yes. Um, well, we we bought a one farm, 160 acres, and then like eight years later. So like 80, 87 or something, we, we sold it and we bought another place. The other place cost us 103000 and uh, that was 170 acres with uh, um, how many feet, like 500 feet of riverfront, or it was more than that, a quarter mile of riverfront. And then... Um, uh, associated with that was a, a, a ag leases, which you had to do a certain amount of work on, and then you bought. So mm -hmm. we bought two ag leases attached to this place that ended up bringing it from 170 to 500 acres mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> over the the years. And were we those were reasonably priced? Yeah, they they were like twenty thousand each or something, or yeah, around that something, you mm -hmm. know, like that, and. Uh, you you're supposed to log them to in order to make farmland that's the idea mm -hmm. so we did one of them we did uh, a lot of logging on it and uh, cleared it up and made it into basically improved pasture in fact both of them mostly it's for for grazing for the sheep <clears throat> and uh well we never made much money the the uh the reasons we didn't make much money is because we didn't take advice <laughs> we were like most young people who we thought we just wanted to do what we wanted to do and we weren't really even though we were friends with all our with all the neighbors we were in good good terms with all like rancher neighbors mm -hmm. right um we weren't going to really listen to them very much you know so we wanted to work with horses mm -hmm. we wanted sheep we didn't want cows because I don't know maybe sheep were easier to grab or something you know like you know cows are kind of intimidating you know mm. and um, 
I got mugged by a cow once. That's a different story. I don't. We're gonna stick. We're gonna focus on you, Patty. <laughs> so, but you know, this the the sheep didn't make sense where we were. They were. We had wolves, bears, coyotes, cougars. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they all like to eat sheep, and uh, and you have to fence them. You can't. And we had range. We couldn't put them out on range, mm-hmm. right? We had. Uh, I forget how many AUMs came with the place, you know. Anyway, um, the the short story is that we we struggled with the sheep for years and years, and we had organic lamb. We used to ship it down to Vancouver and uh, to uh, Choices, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to ship um, whole lamb, you know, down there from a slaughterhouse in Beaver Valley, but. It was, uh, we didn't have the volumes that you would need to, like, I don't know what it is now, but back then, sort of the family farm income level for sheep would be around 500 ewes, you know, minimum. And we we had maybe 200, and that was about max of what we could do. So they never, you know, we never made much money at it. And, uh, but the, the vegetables uh, were pretty um, lucrative. We did all right with that. Mm-hmm. So, like in relation, I, I, what I keep, what I think about is, especially back then, it, it, it can't have been a very dense population up there. I mean, my southern BC ignorance is probably showing. <laughs> but um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking back 50, 40 or fifty years. I mean, but there were enough people that to sell to, or or, or a sufficient oh, yeah. lack of of other. Well, veggie by the growers? by the time we had a commercial market garden, that would have been in the early nineties. By then. And uh, we had a very vibrant, and they still have a very vibrant farmer's market in Quinell. Quite mm-hmm. a nice one. In fact, it's one of the nicest ones I've ever seen. If, I mean, I'm digressing, but um, it's not a parking lot. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, grassy field, you know. Uh, it's really, and it's it's comfortable. There's shade, there's benches. You know, they've, they've thought of everything. There's toilets, you know. Mm-hmm. Compared with even around here, some of the... I'm not impressed with some of the farmers markets mm-hmm. around here. They're just parking lots, you know? Mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, they don't have the vibe. That's for sure. I agree. Yeah. So yeah. let's let's move on to talking about farming then. Okay. So so like, you know, I, I really want to focus on you know your decision at many years ago to focus on organic production, and so I'm just going to start at the start. Like, was that was that the focus even at the first commune? When did you yeah. really start to zero in on it? Yeah. Well, that was. Uh, uh, well, I was raised. Uh, to be an environmentalist in uh, and then picked it up very early you know like with silent spring and stuff mm-hmm. like that so that that uh was always my political point of view it's it's from from my rough calculation you were square smack in the middle of the back to the land movement like, exactly yeah yeah, yeah yeah and uh so organic farming just uh, ticked all the boxes so this was something so I, I, I mentioned in my late teens, like I was, you know, at loose ends. This was, um, I wasn't the only one. You know, there was all kinds of young people that didn't know what they wanted to do. Their life was pretty affluent then. It was easy to work. I worked at the shipyards for a while. Uh, was making really good wages. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it wasn't a struggle to survive. Uh what was difficult was figuring out what I wanted to do with my time. So being a farmer meant that I could do something that I enjoyed, didn't have a have to punch a time clock, and it fit my political 
uh, aspirations, mm-hmm. right? Because it was organic farming. Mm-hmm. So that, and and that I'm sure with a lot of people that in the organic movement, it's the same same thing, right? And so, can you remember any of your early struggles or learning opportunities? <laughs> like back then, what were what were the what were the biggest challenges? With regards to organic production and figuring out organic a system that would work, what were some of the challenges that you remember? Well, uh, one of the biggest challenges was having bad ground, having bad soil. You know, living on a place with it was full of rocks, or you know, so you couldn't farm much mm-hmm. because you're you didn't have farmland. And then uh, when we I said that we bought another farm, and so this place was down on the river bank bottom. So, it was, it was farmable, but pretty gravelly and sandy. Mm. So nice for carrots, but very low to nutrition. So we did struggle with uh, um, like hay crops, you know, like not getting much production, and mm. that's one of the reasons we weren't that profitable, is because. We weren't getting much from our fields, you know. We we had irrigation, which uh, um, was as smart of us as when a, a good um, choice we made very early on. There was these incredible loans you could get from the from the Minister of Agriculture by, back then um, for infrastructure. It was super good deal. Uh, I think we borrowed twenty five thousand to put in a really good system, you mm-hmm. know. And then uh, the interest rate was ten two percent, and you could put you could save money at easily at seven percent oh, back wow. then. Right. You know, you know. So yeah, it was a uh, it was a sort of an even for us who are very averse to um, debt. Debt, yes, yeah. debt adverse. We still saw the value of this, mm-hmm. and it was a good good thing to do. So we had irrigation, but. Um, we didn't have a good nutrition plan, mm. and uh, I always remember like we had. I had one field, just a little. It might have been like three acres tops, nice little field, and uh, I got one year I got like six six bales from it. And when this is from one cutting, and I had this is with irrigating it, right? Mm. So it's not. And the our bales are about seven hundred pounds. The next year, I got a bunch of horse manure from the neighbor and borrowed a manure spreader and I put it all on this field just on top of the of the grass before it started up in the spring I got 42 bales I mean the the seasons are different but still sure. but it's it was obvious you know that we just didn't have the nutrition we needed back and, then were you already clued into cover cropping as a means to do that yeah we did we had a we had a uh, rotation we used sweet clover and you could tell the difference after a sweet clover plow down you mm-hmm. know but still we were in gravel soil mm-hmm. you know so it can only do so much you know you can't change the 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 type of soil you yeah got, right. right you know so it it needed constant um, the and then we once we started uh, we, we had about six acres in garden once we started doing that of course we needed every bit of nutrition for the for the garden yeah right you know because you know how much they demand oh sure yeah and so was it just truckloads of horse manure or what, what were you doing oh uh, well we we had we had the livestock so you know we had a fair bit of livestock we still had about 200 ewes 
and we would butcher on the farm and everything we butchered we would compost in these mm. big piles of compost and including the hides mm. you know and uh so that was pretty rich yeah right you know? and uh that would go on the garden okay so fast fasting forward yes uh i want to we're going to come back to production but but tell me at what point because I'm, t- I have no, I have no sense of the timeline. That okay. Because uh, it sounds like you were up there longer than I appreciated. Right. So at what point did you start getting involved with what we'll just call organic sector development? So in the culture, organic is starting to take on, a, I'm assuming, yeah. meaning. So can you? Because like, what is that in the '80s where that started happening? Uh, late '80s for me, um, much earlier for the movement. Mm-hmm. You know, like in California and in and Germany and stuff. But it was late '80s for me, and then probably 1990 uh, or be, like uh, SUPA started mm-hmm. something around then or maybe a little earlier maybe even 89 or something I can't remember and then the uh, South Okanagan Organic Producers Association yes yeah you're right so uh, a buddy of ours uh, that was he had a little homestead and uh, he was actually growing like little small amounts of fruit like apples and things and and plums I think on the Fraser River in a kind of a microclimate and he he got the idea of forming our own certification body in the caribou because these things were popping up all over BC right and can I stop you there and just ask you to confirm and I'm going to intentionally keep it simple and risk oversimplifying but that's okay but they were popping up because this idea of organic food was really starting to t- like starting to develop meaning meaning in the marketplace yes exactly but then that brought about this need to start to create an agreed upon set of principles or standards standards yeah which helps the whole movement be able to market the pro- the, the farm products yeah and that isn't oversimplifying that's perfect okay so uh, so you guys decide to start your own association yes, up there. Yeah, and uh, I I got involved in that and um, start and then started enjoying doing this because uh, for many years all I've been doing is farming and working with my hands, right? Mm-hmm. So I started doing some intellectual work, uh, which for the first time in since high school, right, or university. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the the challenge and thinking and writing and stuff. So I just started doing more of that and getting more involved. And then when the um, these disparate certification bodies started to come together to form a provincial organization, I got involved in that. And mm-hmm. just you just keep stuck with it. That's all. So at this point, I will state for the listeners that like you went on to become hey everyone it's jordan again cutting in with a little mid-episode mini segment so listeners to the podcast may recall that i have made requests in the past most recently during a fake episode that we put out on april fool's day for shoutouts that listeners might want to give to people in the organic farming community who deserve being shouted out for mentorship or just giving them good advice or doing them a favor or whatever. People who have contributed to your success in some way, large or small, or just people who have done great things for the community. 
and I had a couple submissions that I wanted to share right now, which I'm going to do in just a moment. And before I do, I want to encourage someone listening right now to think about who they'd like to shout out because it's really easy. Pull out your phone, like stop this podcast right now, pull out your phone and record a voice memo and just start talking about someone you want to shout out in the community. If you make a mistake, just take a breath, go back a few words and keep going. I'll do all the rest in editing and I will put your submission in a future episode. So record that memo and send it either to farmer at unearthedorganics.ca, farmer at unearthedorganics.ca, or no ors, no ors. Send it to farmer at unearthedorganics.ca. So here are a couple of submissions for this episode, and then we'll get back to my conversation with Patty Doherty. I'm just calling about your April Fool's Day request. Um, it's Annalise from Fresh Valley Farms. And I think that like digging back into my earliest memories, I would say Mendel and Paula Rubinson from Silver Springs Organics up Dead Man Creek. They were just always instrumental in my ideas of place and food and just what kind of goodness and organic meant. And they really had an emphasis or have always had an emphasis on open pollinated varieties and just grown big, beautiful vegetables for my entire life. So I think just in terms of community building and continuous growth, they've just been stalwart at the Cantaloupe Farmers Market. So those are organic community members that I would like to recognize. Thanks, Jordan. Hello, Jordan. This is Tristan Vanwell recording on April 1st, a beautiful sunny day in Lillooet. I wanted to give my shout out to Sarah Stewart in Pemberton. Beyond her history in organic vegetable production, she's working for Organic BC, and I believe her job title would be something like events coordinator. And she's the force behind the current Organic BC video series, virtual field days, and a number of in-person events throughout the winter, many of which I attended in person. I wanted to say that I think that these videos and these events are exactly what the organic community needs right now. It's sharing our knowledge, bringing us together after a time of separation, and just giving us an excuse to get together and celebrate. So I think she's doing a tremendous job, and I just wanted to say thank you very much, Sarah. Keep it up. So at this point, I will state for the listeners that like you went on to become pivotal in this in sector development, and I'm not going to let any uh, impetus towards humility rise up from you. I mean, <laughs> you're a recipient of the Brad Reed Award, which recognizes contributions to the organic sector in BC. You've done a, you've done a lot, and we could we could go we could take that in many directions. I'm gonna I'm gonna t- I'm gonna start with a quick very quick anecdote I heard about you. Okay, and even if it's not entirely factually accurate i have a good lucky feeling it it captures something okay and the story is a really basic one i heard of like one of however many meetings among these different organic farmers from around the province at these meetings developing the sector like figuring out how it was going to work in bc and there was a lot of bickering in this one meeting and i'm told you got up and said you are all being a bunch of idiots and 
I just want you to talk about that time. If you can, if you can, if that sounds roughly true, that there were meetings like that and that you played that role sometimes. Yeah. Initially, there was a lot of bickering. We had trouble coming to agreement on on using the um, legislation. That was very, very content- contentious. Using it, you're implying it was, it was already in place? There was legislation, and we could choose to become part of it if we wanted. Can we, you describe that legislation very basically? It was called the Food Choice and Disclosure Act. And this is a, B, a piece of BC legislation. Yeah, Bill yeah. Vanderzam bought it, in, brought it in, yeah. and Daphne Stencil uh, wrote it. Uh, she's with the ministry, and uh, we were approached from the Ministry of Agriculture. Do you guys want to put organics under this legislation to write a regulation for organics in BC? And uh, I was quite keen on it. I had all kinds of reasons why I wanted to do it, uh, and and so were some of our, some of my colleagues, you know. And but there was a uh, quite a few that uh, didn't want government involvement. Some of them was because they were growing pot, right? And they uh, and they, you know, they just they were like, like, you know, uh, um, and but a lot of them just because. They just didn't like, they, they didn't suit them, you know? Well, can you try and elaborate a little? I'm really curious, other than the pot growers, what, <laughs> what, what their concerns or objections were? Like, what were they predicting might happen? They didn't want government interference in, in, in what we were doing, right? I'm asking because... They didn't trust the government. I'm asking because we fast forward 20 years or more and we get to the point where the word organic becomes a protected word. Right. Right. And I'm, and that came with, to me, trade-offs, right? There are benefits, especially for the certified operators, but there's a whole lot of people who are outside the system that find that, like, autocratic, you know, yes. to take a word from earlier in this interview. So I'm wondering if that's the kind of thing they were afraid of or if you could speak to. In a few minutes, I want to talk about some of the trade-offs and compromises the movement had to make on its way to getting... To, to achieving the global market, you know, uh, dominance or just uh, uh, understanding that it has, you know? Okay, well, it probably goes back to a discourse that still exists and will continue to exist probably in the organic movement is the, the um, tension between the small-scale homestead type farmers mm-hmm. farmers market type farmers and larger scale commercial organic both organic right right so the small scale organic farmers that were selling the farmers market they had no need really of certification but they would get involved in it because it didn't cost much and and it was a often fun fun people to hang out with right and they really truly they were true believers That's as far true. as the movement right yeah, so there's yeah. that there was that motivation and however um larger scale commercial uh organic farmers uh saw it as a marketing uh, as a really important marketing aspect of their they could do uh this 
thing and actually you know make a decent living so that and in that original di di discourse or division that you could probably cut it along those lines that there there was people with who were commercially minded and wanted to see organic become available in grocery stores which it wasn't back then or, or even or even beyond that being able to send organic produce around the world yes. which was another became a big factor later they right? wanted to you wanted to ship apples to the uk or germany or wherever right? and ultimately have the uk say yes we agree this is organic we will sell it as organic and, and pay the premium yeah that's right and uh so the anyway that's well, you were, I, I, maybe you can go on a little bit more, but you're, you're, you're essentially, I interrupted you, but you're talking about this tension that always existed between those two forces. Yeah, and it still does. Yeah, I would, I, I think it's still, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, as long as it's, it doesn't wreck the movement. You know? but, but that was going to be a, I'll just ask you that question now then. How, now jumping to 2023, how do you think the, the movement, the sector has done at preserving the spirit or core principles of organics? Oh, I would say very well. To the detriment of its own um, uh, growth, mm. right? There's a lot more that could could have been done. <clears throat> There's all kinds of wannabe organic claims. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Rainforest Alliance has this huge program mm -hmm. that is quite successful. And, but it, it doesn't have the, the the stringency of the organic standards because they they have well they have a different motive mm -hmm. you know the and uh, oh there there's a bunch of whole bunch of other ones that that are out there for agriculture and internationally and, and but mostly their motives are more about improving livelihoods than they are. And and ecological, I, sh I shouldn't, uh, you know, mm -hmm. rather than um, being very strict about the the minutiae of the standards, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's it's interesting to hear your perspective because I think there's if you go back to this tension that always existed between the small scale true believers, yeah. right, and like the business oriented larger commercial organic farms that came to be. There's lot. There's plenty healthy. Plenty of healthy criticism now from from the former, from the from the small scale true believers that that organics has had to make too many trade offs and compromises on its way to this like no that, position. I would disagree. Organic has made very few compromises. Like I can think of a few. I remember when we needed organic milk. Uh, we decided that. Um, uh, organic dairies could continue to use liquid manure, mm -hmm. which is kind of a nasty way to do it. You know? Yeah, and I, and I imagine there's a way to fix that, but I'm not. I'm I don't. I'm not technically proficient in that area. We agreed that yeah, they can continue to use organic manure, and our uh, it was um, a few years later. Rick was talking to me, and he said, "You know, we never should have uh, allowed." Blanket allowed that. We should have put a derogation in mm -hmm. and said, you're allowed to use man liquid manure and in five years we're going to review it and or, or, you know, kind of something like that, yeah. right? But once you, you agree to that, it's, you know, 
it's tough. It's you can't back. Okay, well, I'm not going to dwell on this too much. I'm yep. going to use a different example. I think a really <laughs> common criticism is that organic standards now have become so focused on inputs, like it, just a list of inputs that yep. you use, yeah, and that it's very easy for farms, big or small, if they want to to not really have to be focused on crop rotation and cover cropping and it really comes down to what inputs are you using on your farm so that'd be one example and another is arguably some of the it's not like this is this is a criticism that exists just some of the some of the allowances around the level of confinement that is allowed say in poultry production so maybe i'll just ask you to respond to that and we'll move we'll move we'll move on from it yeah i um i i don't i haven't paid attention to the poultry one but i remember when ann macy was doing that it was a real struggle mm-hmm. you know it was tough because there is really hard pressure from these big farms you know and there's a demand in the public the public wants organic chicken you know and organic eggs you mm-hmm. know so um uh, <clears throat> i don't know what the result is i i think that um she did a great job of standing firm and ensuring that uh, organic sta- animal welfare standards are adhered to. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes, like, just because a farm is large, like they've got 60,000 chickens or something, mm-hmm. it's very difficult. Like, there's two things. One thing, one is that some people feel that you cannot be organic and have 60,000 chickens, mm-hmm. right? And there may be some sense in that. And the other thing is that the log- logistically, it's probably very difficult, you know. Can I tell you what I'm hearing? Yeah. I'm, the way I'm, what I'm inferring is that on this topic, you're a pragmatist. So I'm going to guess. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'll tell you what, I, what I'm hearing, and then you can tell me if, if, I, if I'm right. Like, it, it seems like your point of view is, yeah, we can, we can definitely talk about some of, some of these potential compromises. But I would think from your point of view, we now have organic eggs available on grocery stores that are using organic grain like 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 yeah. seeing the positive development that that what that meant for organic grain acreage in the world the thing is i think most people in the organic movement don't really understand where their place is in the ecosystem of all these different claims and in agriculture generally mm-hmm. we're still very small we're still just like two percent mm-hmm. you know kind of thing but organic has always been the vanguard. And uh, non-organic agriculture has had to move because of us. Mm-hmm. They've had to move toward us in a lot of areas because of what we've done. Can you, can you think of an example? Um, uh, a lot of pesticides, uh, I, IPM... They, IPM's a good example. Uh, integrated pest management yeah. in, in fruit production, for example. Yeah. And uh, that the when as soon as people see that there are organic carrots on the shelf in a grocery store, mm-hmm. they start to clue in that that you you can do it a different way. Mm-hmm. And then people that produce organic non-organic carrots, they start to understand that that's possible too and that the public wants that that's the main point mm-hmm. the public is demanding more more accountability more transparency and more just plain old ecological safety you know mm-hmm. or 
protect protection, that kind of thing, and, and still try and keep the cost down. So I'm gonna try. I'm gonna attempt to use that as a segue. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about the um, increasing uh, uh, prominence, I guess, in in the marketplace and and in in, in farm conversations about the the word regenerative. So you just mentioned that like one benefit of this whole movement of organic agriculture is that it's 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 had an effect on pulling oh yeah all farming towards more sustainable practices right yeah so now i would think an example of that so we have regenerative now taking on meaning like in the discourse as a as a, a word that means farming that is building soil that is building soil fertility right and you and i both know that that has been foundational to organics since the start now what's interesting about it is there's there's like this divergence within the regenerative conversation right so and this happened right at the beginning because you've got if you're talking about in most conversations about regenerative farming in 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 conventional farming circles one one friend and colleague put it you're basically talking about the use of herbicide to 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 build soil or to to avoid tilling right Mm -hmm. so that's one definition of regenerative farming right is hey, we've made an advance. And maybe we can credit, as you've just said, we can credit the organic movement to some degree for this. It's like, we have learned or we have realized that when we just till the soil in our you know, large-scale industrial farming context over and over and over and over, we're, we're destroying the soil. And now, instead, we figured out how to spray herbicides at the end of our crops and then use really advanced um, no-till planting yeah, well, they've they've got a great term for it. They call it conservation tillage or conservation farming, which is like bril- a brilliant um, um, doublespeak. Like it's great. I, I'm not I'm not a fan of uh, of conservation farming at all. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it's been great for the companies that sell herbicides and the herbicide tolerant crops. Mm-hmm. You know, and. Um, and I, ha- to be honest, haven't spent a lot of time looking into the results of of long-term use of this type of farming. I think that it went the wrong way, that organics has a lot to learn, but did have a better answer in terms of uh, green manure and cover, cover cropping, like putting um, carbon into the soil mm-hmm. to... a to encourage the biome in the soil to flourish, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm actually I'm going to do a talk at at the conference this fall on cover crops. And there's new research that shows that um, tillage tillage in the presence of adding to the soil. Mm-hmm. Does is not uh, you can still have a net gain. Yeah, you have a net gain. You're not a. It's not as. It's not bad like Mm -hmm. it's been made to believe. We've been made to believe, because our our system requires tillage. It's very difficult. We've tried to find different ways to do organic no-till, but it's kind of tough. Yeah, you know, and and uh, people are still doing different things like with crimpers and things like that. And um, I think the there'll be some success but what we've found that really works is putting something back in the soil mm-hmm. adding to the soil that 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 seems to really work so um that uh, i don't know that that's 
and then oh you were wanted to take on regenerative mm-hmm. like um so i don't know yet mostly i think that a lot of commercial farmers would be happy to move to organic if it wasn't called organic because it it it's a, there's a connotation with it mm-hmm. and it connotates the that's a, a good like for some people it's really great because it connotate the organic movement is still trading on the authenticity of the back to the land movement right mm-hmm. we're still selling our product and i mean there's a lot of authentic just up the road you know you should go vi- uh, interview doug saba mm-hmm. you know like and there's a lot of really authentic organic farmers that you know do it that way that that are committed and they sell their stuff at the farmer's market and it's good product and it's you know they so when when you buy that product at the supermarket it's evoking that farmer that authentic small-scale farmer right Mm -hmm. even though it might be a large commercial market so my point that they would like they wouldn't mind doing organic if it wasn't called organic and if they were allowed to use uh, uh, synthetic fertilizers. Mm-hmm. So regenerative agriculture gives them that. It does right now. I would agree with you. I think, I think, I think it's a response of a type and I think you've just encompassed most of it. I, you can kind of divide it, right? There are subgroups within, yeah. right? To me, there are subgroups that are embracing regenerative as a term and as a concept who are from the beyond organic, uh, disenchanted with organic. Oh yeah, sure. Right. So there's that group. Then there's the group you decide that like do embrace some of these principles. And that's where perhaps going back to what you said earlier, organic can take some credit for shifting practices, but for whom a, a full embrace of the word organic, perhaps I would theorize represents having to acknowledge the that some of the practices were wrong and there's a resentment of that. And if I can speak very plainly, I think that's why our own province has a regenerative farming task force, not an organic farming task force, because it's just, there's too much, there'd be too much stigma for the conventional growers. If the province was saying, we really want to push organic practices, we're pushing regenerative practices, even though those practices they're really most interested in, in encouraging are foundational to organic agriculture. Yeah. And, and uh, they really want to be able to use synthetic fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and there's that's just like organics has really stood firm on that. Yeah, uh, all all through the years, like you know. But but then that's where it gets interesting. You're happy to have seen a shift in all agriculture towards some more sustainable practices, right? And and again, we we can we can agree that organic can take some credit for that. But like, is that a is it something that ultimately maybe organics can be proud of then? Like, is it... Yeah. We, You and I would love to see way, way, way more certified organic agriculture. But if we now have, as a result of the movement, a whole bunch more farmers that are incorporating some of these foundational principles while they use synthetics at the same time, it's a hybridization, but it's still a couple steps in the right direction. Yeah, the, 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 that's what... Um, that's just what uh, WWF is is trying to achieve like they're uh, organics is like niche you know Mm. but uh, so we have our 
our role is to show what can be done, you know, and, and WWF, um, they decided they wanted landscape level change over huge areas, but just as of a small thing, say removing a few really noxious pesticides mm -hmm. out of, out In of the incremental, scene. incremental change, a incremental over large, uh, whereas organics is like, um, there is no gray area. You're either certified or you're not, mm -hmm. you know, whereas some of these other programs, there's all kind of nuances mm -hmm. about it. You know, it's, a, it's not like, it, it's, it's all moving in the right direction is what I feel. I'm not sure about regenerative because I don't know who regenerative is. It's just a word. It seems it's like. just a word right now to me, to me. <laughs> There are some not it's not exact, but there are some parallels to organic in the seventies and eighties, oh, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, even though there's this divergence within regenerative between two various different styles or definitions. Yeah. But, um, I, I just like I'm interested to think about like you're you're describing like a positive relationship in a sense between the two, right? And a, oh. and a connection between the two. And I think I agree with you. I also worry, because I am a worrying sort, that that like, I just see it as a real tightrope to have to walk, though, that regenerative could easily, like, in, in it, it could easily supersede organic, right? Like, if, if it, it, right now it's being defined in a really kind of slippery, gray way, there's no, there, there are some standards developing, but not entirely. So, do you think there's anything to that worry that I've just attempted to articulate? Like, not, no, I'm not really worried about that, but um, I am. Even though I, I said that, you know, we're moving in the right direction, at the same time, I have to admit, like, I think we're, recently I read that we're using more pesticides now than we were um, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. right? So that's a really good indicator that we're actually not, you know. And that I we're actually not, that we're actually not moving, getting to where we want to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, um, and I don't know about synthetic fertilizer, um, my point about I keep on repeating about synthetic fertilizer is that there's pretty good evidence that it it kills the the biology. Uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, which is like you can maintain all that you can say all this stuff about how great we are for the soil because we we don't till it, mm -hmm. but meanwhile we're putting uh, agrotoxins on it that are that is is harmful to the the animals that live in the soil you know that, that you know it doesn't seem regenerative to me mm -hmm. to be invoking that kind of um paradigm you know like it doesn't it doesn't work for me all right patty i really want to spend most of the rest of our our conversation just talking about farming and specifically what you've done here at west enderby farm so i'm going to start at the end and then we'll go back to the start okay, of sure. your time here like right. is it I, is it fair to say you're you're in a move towards retirement right now? Like, is that, is that well? I'm asking. I, you know, I, the evidence I see is you're selling off a lot of machinery. Like, it seems that's happening. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we bought this place in 2010. I told Elaine I would do it for 10 years. I was 55 then. Yeah. So uh, we last year, uh, 2022 was our last commercial crop in my and less things change. Yeah. We grew cauliflower and we grew a lot of cauliflower actually last year. Yeah. And uh but this year none. 
Uh, we, uh, you can look around, we've got cover crops. Down there, that's cover crops. That's in fallow. Behind you is fall rye. And then 15 acres where the blue things are, that's leased. Yeah. For organic alfalfa seed. Elaine mentioned organ yeah. organic alfalfa seed. Cool. Okay. And so I want to... Okay. So now let's go back to 13 years ago then, right? So okay. you, you've had all this experience up right. north to inform. Now you have a chance to, to start fresh. You wanted to start fresh. What did you know? You, what were your deal breakers when you bought a new farm? Like, I have to imagine the quality of the soil mattered, given what you described about what you dealt with up there. Yeah, we wanted good ground and water. Those two things were very important. And a really crappy house was bizarrely part of the thing, too, because it meant we could afford it. Do you, do you, are you comfortable sharing what, what you had to spend on this farm? It's okay if you're not. Oh yeah. We, I, I think people are always interested. So this is 40 acres when we bought it. Uh, With a self-described crappy house. Oh yeah. The, <laughs> I, I don't mind saying that the realtor put in the ad, you might be able to live in the house while you built new. Right. She, that was the way she wrote it. She this is the house I just plugged into that, that you still live yeah, in 13 yeah, years later. Well, yeah, yeah duh. So, um, <laughs> Back then, when we bought it in 2010, irrigated farmland in this area was 15,000 an acre. Mm -hmm. So we paid 563 for this place. Okay. And then uh, now it's like, I don't know, 36,000 an acre, something mm -hmm. like that. And uh, we struggled for quite a few years. We didn't have any money, but we, I mean, we had, a, we had scraped enough for a down payment, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, I was working uh, for ICEAL for uh, another four years, which was really helpful. Mm -hmm. So I was working full-time, getting paid pretty well. And uh, the second year, I think, we, uh, we made money mm -hmm. because we knew what we wanted to do. And what was that? What did you know you wanted to do when, when you set up here? Oh, we wanted to grow carrots. And, uh, and why? Because they're easy to sell. People want carrots, and um, and I felt we uh, we could grow them. We cougars I, and wolves and bears don't bother you when no, you grow carrots. Yeah, so it's much. true. I didn't want livestock. I didn't. Uh, I'm I'm not really. I'm too self-centered to to be really that great with animals. That's a great way of putting it. I think that I think you just described me. I like animals when they're owned by other people. Maybe. Well, you you have to put them first, Jordan. Yeah, but now that's now that's a little bit. <laughs> now I'm just realizing I've chosen to have kids in the last few years and I've just confessed <laughs> something that I maybe shouldn't have. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I like that. I like that framing. I'm too, I'm too self-centered. I, 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 I see that in myself when I visit my friend's livestock farms. Yeah. Like you, um, you know, when you're lambing the, or, or even like breakfast, you know, you have to go feed them first before you eat that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And you got to put them first because mm -hmm. they're reliant on you. And it's a lot easier to do that with your kids, okay? Well, I don't know. I'm starting to picture all the breakfast that I eat first. But anyway, <laughs> they're still okay. I won't see the consequences of my decisions till they're older and they resent me. But for now, it's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, we chose care. First off, we, we negated a few things. The uh, One of the first things was we're not going to the farmer's market. We're not going to show up at Armstrong competing with our friends mm -hmm. with 10 acres of vegetables yeah. right so that was out so we want to sell um 
to local grocery stores was mm-hmm. the the our main what we wanted to do and uh, we came into it right when this local thing was happening like in 2010 was you were starting to hear all this local bullshit was going on uh like way back when when we went to talk to the grocery stores they would be uh condescending and not very nice to us generally mm-hmm. you know the produce manager didn't want to you know really deal with this although we did remember one summer in in Quenelle we sold romaine lettuce to save on foods all summer long mm-hmm. and uh that taught us how much a crop of romaine takes out of your ground eh mm-hmm. yeah you really had to you know you couldn't just re- replant you had to bring in truckloads of gravel to replace the gravel <laughs> that you took out of there anyway um the so and then uh, I just wanted, I had, for some reason, I wanted to grow carrots, even though this isn't really good carrot ground. The, the carrots grow well, but it's, it's hard to work, mm-hmm. you know. But um, we, so I said, like, within a few years, we were making money, you know. And then uh, uh, Elaine's like a, she's a, uh, she's got a degree in uh, agricultural botany from Aberystwyth in Wales. Like, mm-hmm. she, she knows her stuff. And then I'm good with, we decided we're just going to buy junk and make it work, mm-hmm. you know. So we didn't, we already had a lot of debt. We didn't want to go into debt, more debt, you know. And uh, we just got junk and... and Old tractors as a representation, like you're not, you're not buying new, you're buying, you're buying old, old, old stuff and making it go, yeah. old irrigation stuff and making it yeah. go old harvesting stuff the the carrot harvester was 1962 mm-hmm. also along with that philosophy is the notion that i'm 55 mm-hmm. i don't want to go into an enormous right you but, can't realize the value in the new no, equipment yeah no. or, or or the physical plant mm-hmm. we had a nice old barn uh i mean actually it wasn't nice when we first came here but mm-hmm. it's good size you know we were able to make use of that and, and, the uh, realtor said, your cows could live in this barn until you build a new one for them. <laughs> there, it was full of chicken shit, about oh, at least two feet. Mm-hmm. It was awful. Um, then, uh, so, yeah, we just made it. We made it work. And uh, the labor was a struggle. Um, but we, we always did, a, you know, we just worked at it. And mm-hmm. Elena's good that way, you know. And uh, we were getting, right when we, our last crop of carrots, we were really getting good at growing carrots. Mm-hmm. But it took about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what was the hardest? When you say you got good, what was the hardest part to master? Probably the, the hardest part of growing carrots is getting a, a nice uniform row of carrots that is one inch high. Right. right. Once you've got that. Ahead of the weeds, you mean? Is that is that oh, baked yeah, in there? Yeah, yeah. Getting them, getting them like germinated evenly, one inch high with with no weed pressure. So that that includes a whole strategy around weeds, mm-hmm. but also uh, seeding. You know, really good at getting the seed down. Sure. And then we le- it took trial and error. We we learned that we had to roll this ground after we we had to irrigate before we planted. Yeah. We had to plant, and then we had to roll it. We had a big, heavy roller, mm-hmm. bed roller made up, and we... For, for moisture conservation? No, because our ground is so hard mm-hmm. and clumpy 
that we would get a situation where you'd plant the seed into this the the best we could get we couldn't get powder mm-hmm. soil powder we could sure. get aggregate the size yeah. of your baby finger sure so the seed would not be in contact it's, with the ground yeah. right yeah and uh then it didn't get that signal uh-huh. to germinate so you just get spottiness through your whole plant. in some cases we would get nothing come up uh-huh. i planted 10 10 beds over there in new ground so it was really rough yeah and i rolled one okay i'm gonna stop you because this is a fun opportunity to like give people a picture right yeah. so what's a typical just at any point in your carrot production is a typical plot that you're going to put carrots in half an acre an acre like how how, how big just give me an example for a uh so they're 600 foot rows uh-huh. beds 600 foot beds yeah four rows to a bed okay and a bed is about five feet wide Okay, so five feet wide by 600 feet with four rows in it. Yeah, so I'd say 20 of them, like, so maybe two acres would be a carrot, a block of carrots. Sure. Well, you know what? We can just focus on that one 600-foot bed in a planting, right? So let's just assume you've prepared the soil to a degree you like. I'm not going to dwell on that. Now we're ready to to plant. You're going to pre-irrigate? Yeah, and a a vegetable farmer in... uh, Cloverdale taught me that. Yeah. I was looking at some equipment and he said, you're growing carrots? Or we were talking about carrots. And he Mm -hmm. said, do you irrigate before you plant? And I said, no, we do it afterwards. And he said, irrigate before you plant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, he's an old guy, you know. And so I did it. And yeah, I don't know what it does, but we irrigate before we plant. And it has to be, and then the soil has to be, you know, you can get on it, right? It's not really wet. And then... We eventually got a Stanhay drill, a four-row drill. Yeah, was it Robbins or or vacuum? No, it's old, old school. Okay, okay. Uh, 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 round mechan- driven. All, all mechanical. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, with belts. All right. So stop there. What tractor is pulling that Stanhay? I just let people are inter- uh, yeah, really interested. Yeah. Okay. Well, we we bought this old um, Massey 165. I got it in the coast. That was a vegetable tractor. Mm-hmm. And we were able to set it up wide enough so it straddles this the five-foot five bed. Yeah, you know, so it's running down this bed with the with the uh, Stanhay behind it. Okay, so you, you pre-irrigated, you run down with the Stanhay. Then next comes the roller. Uh, then once we you roll made that it, insight, and yeah. the same tractor pulls the roller, and the roller's the right width. Okay, it's a really heavy roller. Okay, like a, a heavy, heavy steel pipe full of water. Right, <laughs> <laughs> and it's about it was about two feet around our diameter yeah right okay and then um then we irrigate right and then what's your what's your next move i have to assume it's a cultivation move no the next move in seven days we'll uh, flame it okay okay we had a um i've got it in the barn still Uh, we had it made up it's a it's on wheels with a tank and it was seven days that seems late like that would seem like you're risking burning the, the carrots Always seven days. Okay. Um, Sometimes it was way too early. Right. But uh, we we waited seven days and then, because we wanted the weeds to come up, right? Sure. And uh, if you irrigate, like there's different ways to do it. Like you could irrigate before you plant, then flame, then plant, then irrigate, 
then flame again mm -hmm. you know like there's different ways to do a stale seed bed you know but this is what we this did this was you seven days one flame yeah and it it usually worked pretty good that gave us um uh, a good break for the carrots to come up mm -hmm. the uh some of the weeds are slow like um amaranth or red-rooted pigweed is slow to germinate and it'll come up after you flame mm -hmm. it's just a, a nasty weed the same with um wild millet mm -hmm. and and wild millet the flaming doesn't really kill it anyway right. so um as soon as the carrots are up late in the day when the light is a certain way mm -hmm. you know uh, uh elaine will come go out there with the basket weeder and uh when we got it on the electric tractor, then she could just, because it's electric, you can just turn it down. You can go as slow as you feel, sure. like, right? You know, you're not having to ride the clutch or anything. So, um, anyway, she would, she would get the um, basket weeder on it as soon as she could, and go. Same tractor. Sorry. Same tractor. Oh no, this? this is on an LSG that's set up with fire to straddle the bed as right. well. Okay. So it's a basket, it's a belly. Looking straight down. Looking straight down. Yeah. At, so, and she's going really slow. Yeah. Right? And then what that does is it marks the rows. Mm -hmm. Even if you can barely see the carrots, you can see the rows now. Mm -hmm. So you, after that, you can go roaring up and down mm -hmm. with the basket weeder as oh, much as I you see. like. Oh, I see. One pass just to mark the rows where she can be really precise. Yeah. Now you can roar. Because the basket weeders want speed to do their job, right? Yeah, to do a def yeah. decent job. Right. And... Um, of course, the basket isn't as wide. Like, it's not... There's still space mm -hmm. because you just can't do it, you know, yeah. like that That precise. Hard to dial it in, sure. Yeah. So if you're really careful, you can go down beside one carrot row. Then you turn around and go beside the next carrot row. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're doing four rows. Mm -hmm. So you got to... The Stan Hay really helped that with that mm -hmm. because it's... You're planting precise, mm -hmm. right? They're just going to plant, you know, where you're driving. Yeah. And... Uh, so we would keep doing that until uh, the stand he's not the basket weeder isn't working anymore. Like the weeds are too big. Mm -hmm. Then we had another tool um, with a knife on it. Yeah, which was very precise, and we would go through with that carefully. Same tractor as the no, the... it was on another LSG. I see. Okay, because it's hard to put these tools. remount them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're a big guy like you, yeah. You just, you just knock a couple of wedges and pull the thing out, and yeah. then you pull the other one in. But if you're not really strong, it's yeah. hard. You know? But another benefit of like having cheap old tractors, if you can maintain them, is you can just have a different, they all ready to go, and you haven't had to adjust yeah. them or anything. Yeah. And then when the carrots got to be, at that point, what I'm describing, the carrots, is, they're three inches tall, and we're still basket weeding. Then we're, we we got to do a hand weeding in the row. Oh no, kidding! Yeah. So at your scale, you're still that's still a reality. Yeah. So we we employed kids when we could, like from the high school or just people, and we would try and uh, we would start at seven and work until eleven or noon. Yeah. That was it. Um, so it worked good with high school kids. Like they they came uh, as a group. They knew each other, and you know we'd work together. Then at noon they'd go have the rest of their day they'd go to the beach yeah you know so yeah we would with do a, that you know 
big bag of carrots they've just been paid no. off to the beach you know you know teenagers they're <laughs> they like carrots probably probably throwing them off some overpass you probably yeah. cause a few accidents with this weeding scheme of yours hey <laughs> they they were great we really like uh we i don't think we we like it was hard to recruit employees but we really liked the employees we had yeah they worked well and um but i found like five hours of weeding on my hands and knees was when I got to be like 60 years old, mm-hmm. that was tough. You mm-hmm. know, I was, I couldn't do much the rest of the day. It was had to be pretty quiet, mm-hmm. and uh, that would take a few. That, that so that was it. We would plant late. This was in July. Now we plant our carrots really late, like mid June, early or yeah, early to mid June, and uh, this was in July, and then the next. Once they've had one hand weeding, uh, then usually it was time to go through with the hillers. We had mm-hmm. hillers that did a beautiful job. Mm-hmm. And that was easy. You just drive through and hill them up. And you could do it maybe twice. And then when the carrots are, you know, they're over a foot high. Mm-hmm. You know you've, you know what it's like. They got they shade themselves. Sure, and, and yeah. you've, 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 you've won the lion's share of the battle. Yeah. You're going right. to get a good harvest if you've, if you've done it well up to that point. Yeah. And then... Uh, what is your, what is your preferred digging fork for harvesting your carrots? Oh, we always use That's the harvester. A joke. Yeah, yeah, no, I assume you have a harvester. So, uh, <laughs> undercutting. Okay, so Patty, yeah. we've we've given people a little bit of a snapshot of the carrot production. That's good enough. I just love to give people a visual. And uh, by the way, this is all documented in one of Van Macy's uh, cog books. Yeah. Um, I don't. I can't remember the name of the one. One of the field crop books, I think. Right. Well, she asked us to to give a really good description of how we did what field did. carrots. Hey everyone, Jordan cutting in really quickly to say that I looked for this book that Patty just referred to, and I don't think it was actually by Anne Macy. I have no doubt she was very involved at the time in helping to to produce these books. She is responsible for another Canadian organic growers handbook on livestock production, but I couldn't find the exact book that Patty was referencing. However, if you want to look yourself, Google Canadian Organic Growers Handbooks, and you can find some pretty interesting stuff. While I was looking, I realized I didn't own the book that they have for organic field production, and I picked up an e-copy. Anyway, I'll include a link in the show notes. Okay, okay. And so there's pictures too. I'm gonna we're gonna end our our, our interview on mostly kind of lightning round type questions, okay, right? Because because it's fun, and people will be curious. Um, what do you consider the like in the context of West Enderby Farm, this yeah. farm and your carrot operation? What was what are one or two of the most important investments you made? Uh, well, we did we early on we bought uh, a barrel washer that that came up for sale, and we weren't really ready for it. The same with the carrot harvester, mm-hmm. but we had big plans. We could see where we were headed, right? So we went ahead and bought those things and uh they they were really and then um i've got one cooler left but i had um a number of these Mm -hmm. tractor trailer based coolers yeah 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 and um they were really important yeah Yeah. so in, in the case of the harvester and the washer just for efficiency i would imagine mainly for volume yeah 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 I just think there are, this is maybe going to segue into another question, and I want to ask you about advice you have for up-and-coming farmers, for newer farmers. And I, I, I'll offer that maybe I've observed that, like, 
young or new farmers, maybe a good percentage of them spend too much time shying away from investments that mean they are both way less efficient and less happy because it's just harder. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. Um, you could look to successful commercial farmers, right? Mm. What are they doing? Why, you know, why are they so rich, basically? Mm. And the the main thing, I, I mean, this is a business thing anyway, like mm. it's not just farming. They're not afraid of debt. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Do you, is that, a, is that suggesting that your debt averseness, you're not entirely like that you would, yeah, you, you it, would take it, it held like us that? back for yeah. sure. You know, um, in my case, there's a, a nuance to it in terms of my age. Mm-hmm. So I came into this place late in life. Yeah. So it, it, it didn't make sense to do a lot of investment. But if I had been 45 instead of 55, um, we could have bought those houses across the street mm-hmm. for um, really cheap. A song and what, put employees in them? What do you yeah. Do? Yeah. <laughs> could have put employees in them. Yeah. Either... Um, um, Foreign worker program type stuff, yeah, yeah, or or not, you know, yeah, well, whoever. But that would have made getting employees so much easier, right? And they they would have been an investment too. Actually, I didn't think about that. Yeah, well, you know, um, then you have to service that debt, of course. You yeah. Know? So you then you so you you end up being on this treadmill, and sure. that that can make you unhappy, right? the stress of of the debt but you, yeah. you you think there's a balance to be found well i think the i i think the, the key is too many farmers their farm is their their life it's their home mm-hmm. right so if the farm is a business that, that can win or lose then then it's different mm-hmm. you know so you have a business and you go into debt to run your business and the business either pays for itself or doesn't, you know, but you're not, um, bereft and homeless. Yeah. If there's it goes higher under. stakes if it's your, it's yeah. where you're making yeah. your life. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, I never really investigated that, but I'm sure there's ways, you know, to manage that so that, um, your, your farm is more of a business than it is your everything. Yeah. Mini tangent then. You mentioned these great loans from the government for irrigation like 40, 50 years ago, whatever, 30, 40, 50 years ago. The amount of different program, ag programs that are aimed at farmers now is dizzying, but they're not all effective. And it sounds like I'm going to infer that, that, that you you really think that was a good program. I this don't know idea why they stopped it. Low interest loans that are like... Yeah, for infrastructure. They... Uh, it had a name, you know, I, 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 after a while it might come to me. But, yeah, it made a lot of sense. To We put in irrigation, but you could, uh, you could build a barn, you know. You could build a silo. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, do all kinds of things. Uh, uh, and I don't remember them even asking, <laughs> this is kind of silly, but how you're going to pay it back. Whereas, you know, if you go to the, <laughs> to the bank, yeah. you know. They, they want a plan. Well, and they want off-farm income. Yeah. Right? Generally, you know, like it's really tough for for young people without, you know, the farmer credit was good with us then. But even when we bought this place, I was working, pay, being paid really well, and Elaine was working at UBC Farm. Mm. That's how we were able to convince Farm Credit to give us a loan. Mm. Without 
if we were just saying, well, this is our business plan and we're going to make money, I don't know. After a few years, yeah, we could have gone back and they would have seen... Some, some yeah, revenue. Yeah, and they would have probably given us another half a million easy, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, we struggled on regardless. Yeah. Know. Okay, any other... Any That was... I, I led you to that answer yeah, about yeah. debt. What, any other advice for, for, new, for the younger generation? Well, uh, it's hard, but listen to advice. So... Like I said, we didn't listen to advice in, in our previous, you know, enterprises. When we came here, I said to myself that I would. Now, I didn't all the time. Like Herman told us, don't, don't try and harvest in September, basically, because mm -hmm. you know, it starts raining. And we didn't listen to him. And uh, you know, we had a, it was a horrible struggle, like mm. the mud. But we, we got linked up with Destin in Coston. And he was, he was just a... A joy, like he was, uh, angel to us, mm -hmm. and, and because he he'd been growing carrots for over twenty years, and we basically did what Destin does, mm -hmm. almost right to the kind of scales we use to pack the carrots, you know, like we just asked Destin and he showed us everything, and it's, it made it so easy, you know, like. We had to learn, like he had sandy soil, so that apply to your, your yeah, local yeah. conditions. Yeah. yeah, but in terms of like, in turn, when you're commercially vegetable farming, half of it is growing, half of it is logistics, mm -hmm. like uh, handling procedures. Mm -hmm. You know how you move carrots around without. We I we only I only picked up a carrot once, and that was when I put it in a bag for the store. Right. Oh, that's an, that's a fun detail. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it was all mechanized. We never had to handle the carrots, except for bagging. Right. There was actually there was some sorting on the you production. Liar. I didn't do it. You liar, Patty. No, I didn't do it personally, but our employees did. Right. <laughs> all right. So, be open to advice. That's a good one. Okay. Um, who? Well, this is a related question, or maybe not really. But what? What are you personally? What were your greatest assets that that led to any successes you had? Uh, my perseverance, mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm, I'm stick to itiveness kind of thing, um, and then I have to give Elaine uh, most of the credit, like uh, marketing. Mm -hmm. She's really good with dealing with people, and uh, as I said, carrots aren't hard to sell, mm -hmm. and it's easier to sell carrots when we had you know, 50 tons than it is if if we had like 800 pounds, yeah. you know, like it's a lot easier mm -hmm. because you go to a uh, retail store and you say, well, we can supply you from the end of September until March 1st, mm -hmm. you know, that sounds pretty good, you know, whereas if we got a few carrots right now. Yeah. You know. Can, yeah. Are you okay if we contact you every third week sometimes <laughs> because we have a sack of carrots to sell you? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Patty, who who are your mentors? Do you want to single out one or two that were really important? It, for here, for uh, well, Herman Herman Bruns was really good. Mm -hmm. He's really helpful, and as because he's in the same geoclimatic, same soil, in fact. You know, he's really helpful in terms of, and he'd been doing it for 20 years before we moved here. Mm -hmm. So, but all the guys like Kino was super helpful and uh, Rob Hetler, 
you know, all, all the local guys that we hung out with, or women as well. Uh, Patty Doherty, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me out to your beautiful farm in Enderby and uh, for making all this time to share a lifetime of farming experiences with whoever's going to listen to this. Oh, you're quite welcome. Yeah, we should do it again. Okay, I'll what do go. You think, Patty? Okay, great. It's a wrap. All right, so that was my conversation with Patty Doherty. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And without making any firm promises, I do plan to be back with another conversation with another one of our community's elders. I mean, let me be clear Patty's not that old, and I'm pretty sure he could beat me in an arm wrestle, but you know what I mean. All of you know what I mean. So happy farming, everyone, and I'll talk to you soon.